You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, and I am excited. We are in a brand new section. Woo, please contain your excitement. Of course, some of you haven't been following along uh, with the series, so this is all new to you either way. So, But Ephesians chapter 2, so we're we're walking into a brand new section, uh, which begins in verse 11 and goes down through verse 22. And uh, again, I want to set up some context for you and kind of get you in the full of the passage. Uh, But before we actually get into the passage, I want to kind of lay some groundwork scripturally of where we are heading. Because I think if you understand kind of what Paul is walking into and why he's addressing this particular issue, uh, I think it's going to make this passage a little bit more clear. And so uh, if you're taking notes or if, you're, if you have your Bibles, you may just want to just kind of, just kind of relax for a second. Uh, we're, I'm going to run through a bunch of scriptures with you, kind of set some stage, uh, set a stage before we actually get into the Ephesians chapter 2 passage. And if you want somewhere else that you can turn, uh, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and kind of put your finger there. We're going to get there in just one second. It's interesting, when you look at what God has been doing throughout biblical history, uh, it is amazing that it seems like he is really, really interested in one group of people. In fact, you see that in Genesis chapter 12, right? You have all these great stories like the Genesis accounts and Noah and the Ark and the whole Tower of Babel thing, and you have the, the, the recounting of the histories for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but as you get into chapter 12, there's this huge shift that takes place in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, some scholars have even said that the Bible really starts at Genesis chapter 12. What you have in the first 11 chapters is the prologue that kind of give you the backstory to get you into the story, which really happens again in Genesis chapter 12. And regardless of what you want to do with that, it probably doesn't matter. But Genesis chapter 12 becomes this major turning point, uh, this shift in God's focus, seemingly. Let me just read you the first three verses. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you have this idea that here's, here's all these groups of people in the world. And we understand there's a lot of paganism by this point. Of course, the whole worldliness had already grown up. And God chooses this one man, Abram, from this foreign town in Mesopotamia and says, hey, would you come out from that land? Hey, would you come out from your culture? Hey, would you come out from your family? Hey, would you come out from everything that seems comfortable and just easy to you? And will you follow me? And Abraham, having no idea where he was going, says, okay, I'll follow you. And of course, especially in the book of Hebrews, right? Abraham had no idea what was going on, and yet he faithfully followed the Lord his God, and God brought him into the land of promise, which is the land of Canaan, right? It's what we know as Israel. And it's interesting that it's like God, out of all these people groups, out of of all these countries, out out of all these cultures, God chooses one individual and says, hey, you are going to be my man. And I'm going to literally create a people group out of you. 
Now, what was the whole purpose of God choosing the one man? It's not that he was rejecting everybody else. It's that so that the world would see what God was doing through the one man and that the world would want in on what that one man has. Does that make any sense? And you can even see that in Genesis 12, 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, ultimately, that comes to climax in Jesus, right? Because Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. So all the world is blessed through Abraham. So that is true. But there's this undercurrent through the scripture, scriptures that has this idea that what God was doing in the life of Ab- uh, in Abraham is what he actually wanted to do in the lives of everybody. But hey, they've rejected. So, so God's got to start somewhere. So he chooses one man and says, hey, I'm going to bless you. And what's going to happen is that, wow, out of the blessing for you, all the world is going to say, I want, I need in on that. In fact, you can see that. For example, you have Ruth. Uh, you have Rahab. I mean, you have these individuals who were Gentiles, outsiders, who looked at what God was doing in the life of Israel and just said, I need that. Your God is going to be my God. And I, I'm willing to forsake everything, and I'm willing to come, and I'm willing to follow, and I'm willing to give up everything. And, hey, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to, in fact, could I just become an Israelite? And they did. And what is amazing is the line that Jesus comes through, these Gentile, I mean, Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile Moabitess. Oh, Moabitesses. I mean, just, I mean, you just have this list of, you know, these, these outsiders that God used, which is quite amazing to me. Now, as you follow the story through, God chooses this one man named Abram. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, God makes this promise, this covenant with Abram and says, hey, I'm going to give you offspring. In chapter 16, Abraham takes the whole matter into his own hands and produces Ishmael through his servant. And God says, hey, I've rejected Ishmael because this is not going to come out of your ability or your resource. Hey, this is going to be literally a blessing, a promise through me. And so God, of course, gives Isaac through Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Genesis chapter 17, there is the rejection of Ishmael, but then there's the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, which we're not going to talk about, praise the Lord. But in, in chapter 17 of Genesis, it's interesting that, again, God rejects what, what he was doing, what, what, what Abraham was trying to do with Ishmael, and says, hey, no, 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 there's a promise, and I'm going to set up the promise through this line of Isaac. And, uh, and I would encourage you at some point to read uh, Genesis chapter 17. But it's amazing when you read those first couple of verses. Let me just read them to you. It says that when Abram was 99 years old, can you imagine this? 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come to you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I'm going to give your descendants this land. And it's amazing as you, as you can keep following this through, it's like God is choosing this one man through whom he can bless the entire, entirety of the world. Uh, In Genesis chapter 25, you have Jacob sneaking in and stealing the birthright and the blessing, right? Ishmael despised his birthright, 
But Jacob saw the birthright. He saw this promise that God was giving to Abraham and then to his father Isaac and says, I, I, I need that. And he was willing to do everything wrong in order to get it. He schemed, he manipulated, he lied so that he can have this blessing. Now, as you keep following this through, as you come to the book of Exodus, what you see in Exodus is that what started as one man and one little family has now grown to the point it is a nation. In fact, scholars tell us that when the Israelites left Egypt and was uh, heading across the Red Sea thing, there was roughly two to three million Israelites. So, I mean, could you imagine over the course of these few hundred years, we, we have this promise to one man that is now multiplied into millions. And God has that same promise, that same heart for the people group as he did for the one man. That they are his chosen people. That these, hey, these are the special ones. These are the ones who've been pulled out from the world and are called to be distinct and other than the world around them. Uh, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Uh, just listen, this is what it says. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Uh, they're out Mount, they're, Israel is at Mount Sinai. And it says, now therefore, God says, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, a nation that's been set apart. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God says, do you recognize you are my special treasure? I have really taken you and I've made you a, a special, distinct, chosen group of people. In fact, he gives them the Ten Commandments that they receive direct communication from the God of the universe. Hey, they receive the laws and the ceremonies that they are to literally celebrate in these festivals, these holidays, year after year after year in celebration of their God. Why? Because they were a special chosen people. Now, that is phenomenal. Uh, you come to Deuteronomy 7, and if you have your Bibles, just love you to look at this. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, I just want to read a, just this first section to you. <clears throat> listen, listen to what Moses is reminding the Israelites when it comes to, they're about to enter the promised land, so Moses is going through the reminders, and, and this is what Moses says to the children of Israel. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you are entering to possess and has driven out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you strike them down, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show them no mercy what is more, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or, or their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be inflamed against you and he will quickly destroy you. But this is how I shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a, get this, a holy people to the Lord your God. So what are they supposed to do? They're literally to not look like the culture around them. They're a special, special chosen group of individuals. So destroy everything that does not look like the God of the universe. Hey, do not worship the gods, the, the, the pagan stuff. He goes on and says, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his special people, treasured above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Now get this, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other peoples, for, they were, for, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loved you and because he kept his oath, which he swore to, swore to your fathers. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of slavery from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with them who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Isn't that amazing? So as you begin to follow this through, there's this idea that God says, hey, you are my special people. Hey, I pulled you out of the world, not to look like the world. I've chosen you to be a separate, other than, holy, distinct group of people. And I, hey, you are my treasure. Oh, you're special. Now, the problem with all of this <laughs> is that it kind of went to the head of the Jews. And, and, and maybe, maybe I'm, I shouldn't say rightly so, but hey, when God of the universe says, hey, you're special. Hey, when the God of the universe says, hey, I've chosen you. I mean, that does something to you, <laughs> doesn't it? It's like, yes, that's right. He has chosen me, right? I mean, it's just like, and what you see happening from the time of Moses onward is, is that there became this arrogance of, well, yeah, we are God's chosen people. Well, what does that mean for the rest of the world? Psst. Yeah, just, let's just spit on them. Why? Because, hey, we're chosen, which means they're rejected. But yet that was, God, that was never God's intent, you understand. That God's intent was that he would bless this nation, and through the blessing, the choosing of this nation, the whole world would say, I need in on that thing. Rather, what happened is the Israelites says, whoop, this is for us, not for you. Why? Because we're chosen. You're not. And again, this keeps going through all of Scripture. So again, just listen to this. Deuteronomy 7.14. You shall be blessed above all peoples, O Israel. Deuteronomy 14.2. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 33.12. Blessed is the nation, Israel, whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Psalm 132, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it as his dwelling place. Psalm 135, 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, for his special treasure. Isaiah 41, uh, verse 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Isn't that a great title? Wouldn't you love God to look at you and say, ah, oh, my friend. Abraham was called the friend of God. He was special. He was chosen. Uh, so the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from his farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That Israel, ah, oh, you, you are my favorite people. Israel, oh, you are my treasure. Israel, oh, you are my special chosen people. Now, is that true? Yes. But what it should have caused all of Israel to do is say, oh, more people need this. And it went out and gathered. Instead, they put up walls. It's interesting, in Ezekiel 36, 
I love what Ezekiel 36 says. Ezekiel's bringing this condemnation to Israel, and, and God says, look, oh Israel, <laughs> look, I'm going to demonstrate my holiness through you. But it's not because of you. It's not because of your holiness, because you have profaned my name. But I'm going to demonstrate my holiness through you. I think this is verse 23. Through you, so that all the world may know that I am the Lord. That, that yes, God has chosen this group of people, but why did he choose that group of people? So that the world, the, the nations, would become blessed through the people. And again, what was so sad to me is that it got into the mind of the Jews Hey, we're God's chosen people. We're extra special, which means to everybody else. Now, by the time you get to the New Testament, that division between the Jew and the Gentile was, was extreme. I mean extreme. I mean like extreme. Uh, it's interesting that uh, you look at all the uh, ritual ceremony washings. Now, God gave the ritual ceremony washings. Praise the Lord. By the time you get to the time of Jesus, one of the reasons why we do the ritual cleansing, right? We're going we're gonna to eat a meal, so you, you take the water and you pour it down this hand, you pour it down this hand. Why do we do that? Well, right before the meal, I was walking outside. And could you believe it? Right in front of me, walking about 100 yards in front of me, was a Gentile. And by the way, do you know who the Gentiles are? Us. <laughs> so here are these Gentiles, and they're walking. And do you know what those Gentiles are doing? As they are walking, their shoes are kicking up dust. And that dust, by the time I get to where that Gentile was stepping, that dust is now in the air, and that dust particle put itself on my hand, and now this hand is impure. And I dare not eat my food with an impure hand. Why? Because that Gentile dust touched my hand. That was the thought process. So if you can imagine the intensity of this thing, Rome has invaded Israel. I mean, talk about Gentiles. I mean, we're talking about pagans. I mean, we're, we're talking about horrid kind of stuff. I mean, and what the Romans used to do for the, for the, for the worship of the, of the pagans was just, I mean, their, their pagan gods was horrid. And so could you imagine you have all these Romans around you and of course they're stomping around and kicking up dust and you're having to walk in that as a Jew and man, you just be dirty all the time. Uh-huh. And so the Jew, the mindset of the Jew is, hey, they, hey God has rejected them. In fact, I'll, I'll read you the full quote next week. <laughs> this, this cracks me up. Uh, but in the mind of the Jew, hey, we're God's chosen people. And in the mind of the Jew during the time of Jesus, the mindset was that the only reason why God created the Gentiles was that something had to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Something has to fuel hell. So God created the Gentiles. Why? For the fuel for the fire of hell. I mean, if you talk about division, I mean, we're, we're talking about a huge separation between Jew and Gentile. Uh, it's interesting that in, in the inner court, or sorry, in, in, the, in the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles, which actually impresses me that they even put a court of the Gentiles in. That, that when Herod rebuilt the temple, he established the court of the Gentiles. So as a pagan Gentile, horror, horror Gentiles, right? If you wanted to come and serve and, and worship the God of Israel, you could do that. And you could go to, you could go to the temple. But all, all, along the, there, all along the edge, there was this wall in which the, in archaeology they've actually found these little 
markers, which we'll talk about when we get into verse 14. But they found these markers that basically say, hey, if, as a Gentile, if you cross this line, you will be put to death. So, hey, you could be here, but you're a Gentile. So this is about as far as you can go. God, God will not let you get any closer. Why? Because you are a Gentile. In fact, the whole mindset of a Jew with the Gentiles were that, was that Gentiles were dogs. Now, you've got to get out of that, out of our modern American culture thinking of a dog. Right? We think of dogs nowadays, we're like, oh, look, man's best friend. Right? That was not that, it was not that way in Israel. <laughs> you know? Oh, look, it's fluffy. You know, we can curl up with it and cuddle and look how cute puppies were. That, that, that was not true in Israel's day. In Israel's day, dogs were the worst of the worst of the worst. I mean, the only thing worse than a dog was a pig. And the only thing worse than a pig was a Gentile. So, I mean, <laughs> so Gentiles were just, they were dogs. In fact, let me, <laughs> it cracks me up. Uh, one of the Bible dictionaries said it this way. I just liked how it said it. Uh, moreover, it was written in the Jewish literature. So this was like the Talmud stuff that the, the Jewish rabbis would be writing. It was written in the Jewish literature that as sacred food was intended, not for dogs, so the Torah, the Old Testament, was intended to be given not to the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? That they're like, just as you wouldn't give good food to dogs, like why would you waste your food? Now, don't think American culture, right? Don't think of them eating off of your plate at the end of the meal, right? That, that, they did not do this thing, right? Dog, they did not have dogs as pets. Dogs were these wild animal things. In fact, let me just finish reading this. In the Bible, the dog appears, this is the Bible dictionary. In the Bible, the dog appears as an unclean, utterly, sorry, an utterly unclean animal. A filthy scavenger. A dog wanders about the, the fields and the streets of the cities, disposing of refuge and even dead bodies. Thus, this animal symbolizes uncleanness, not affection and loyalty as in contemporary Western society. For the Jews, the Gentiles are like dogs in their way of life. They live without the Torah, especially without its purity laws. So you get this idea that in the mind of the Jew, hey, the Gentiles were, were worse than worse. I mean, we're going to put up with them because they're here and they've taken over the land. But hey, we're trying to get rid of that too. And what is every Jew praying for? They're praying that the Messiah would show up so that he would march down to Rome, kick Caesar off his throne. And that was the cultural mindset of what the Messiah was going to come for. So could you imagine? Here's Jesus. Jesus shows up. Woo! And the, and, and the, and the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 says, hey, is this now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? M meaning what? Jesus, uh, hey, it's been great. You've been doing all these miracles. Hey, I love the parables. Wonderful. Walking on the sea. Oh, that was awesome. But hey, when are you going down to Rome, Jesus? Hey, when are you going to kick Caesar off the throne? When are we going to finally get rid of the Gentiles from our land? And finally have prosperity and peace like in the days of David and Solomon. And Jesus says, guys, you're missing it. See, as you begin to walk through the New Testament, there is such a divide between the Jew and the Gentile. Even some of the stories that Jesus told, which cracks me up, like the story of the Good Samaritan you realize that in, in a Jewish culture that looked at the Samaritans, which were half-breeds, right? They were half-Jewish, half-Samaritan. And hey, the Jews utterly despised the Samaritans, so much so that they refused to walk through Samaria. They would rather add three days of walking to go around Samaria than to go through Samaria. 
Why? Because we're not going to go where the Gentiles live. Hey, there was such a division. So when Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan, do you know what a shock that must have been like? When the hero of the story is a Samaritan? In fact, when you read the story in, in Luke, it's actually even more humorous because if you remember, this guy is trying to trap Jesus and he's asking, hey, who, who, who am I supposed to love? And Jesus tells the story and Jesus says, now you tell me which one did the right thing. The man wouldn't even say the Samaritan. He said the man who did good to him. As if to say, I'm not even willing to say that person's name because he's a Gentile. See, there, there was such an animosity between these two groups. So think about this. There is a lingering question in the air. God has been moving. God has been bringing about salvation. And as you read the book of Acts, right, here are all these Gentiles who are getting saved. Can you believe it? Mercy. I mean, I, I thought this whole Christian thing was for the Jews. And it did. It started out with the Jews. But, but you, you know the problem. Persecution began to happen. This thing began to spread out. Right? You have stuff like, here's Peter. Right? He's up on the, on the rooftop in Joppa. And he's, he's in this dream or he's in this vision. Right? And, and, the, and the sheet's being let down and all these animals. And God says, hey, Peter, eat. And Peter says, I have never once tasted anything that was improper. I have never had bacon. Not one single time. Sounds miserable. But hey, I've never had bacon. And Jesus says, Peter, you're missing out, buddy. Eat some bacon. I, I've, I've kind of, that was my, my own little translation. <laughs> That's not word for word. <laughs> for clarity. <clears throat> right? But hey, Peter, take, take eat. Right? And, and, and then you have the uh, Cornelius' servants come and he says, hey, uh, we've been hearing what's going on. We are so stirred. Could you come up and speak to the centurion up there in Caesarea? And Peter's like, he's a Gentile. Wait, I don't hang out with Gentiles. And yet the Spirit of the Lord presses Peter and he goes up there and he preaches. And can you believe what the Holy Spirit does? The Spirit of God saves these Gentiles and not just saves them, fills them with the Spirit. In fact, look, in light of all this, think how, just hear this passage afresh. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Speaking of those Gentiles. And those of the circumcision, right, the Jews, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Can you believe what God's doing? He is not staying in his little box. That God is going out and starting to save all these Gentiles? What are we going to do as a church? I mean, up to this point, we've been a good Jewish little sect. We've been this little Jewish community who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And now, now the Gentiles are starting to get in on this thing? I mean, Paul goes out, and of course, you know, you know Paul, you know, he goes out, and as he, as he gets to a new city, he would start at the synagogue. And he would preach at the synagogue. But inevitably, and yeah, there were people at the synagogue who believed, but eventually, he would go out and start just preaching to the masses. I mean, here, here's Paul. He shows up in Athens, and what does he start doing? He starts telling all of Athens that, hey, the God that you don't have a name for, let me tell you all about him. And just starts preaching Jesus to him. And what you start having is a huge problem in the early church. The problem was is we have a whole bunch of Gentiles becoming Christians who are being filled with the Spirit of God. What do we do with these guys? Like, do they have to become Jews? 
do, do they, can they still be, can they be Gentile Christians? Is there such a thing? Lord forbid. And that was, that was an issue in the early church. In fact, so much so that there was this big church gathering, right? It was a big general assembly kind of a thing, and they got together, and they had all these, you know, people standing up and giving some thoughts. Peter would stand up and say, well, let me explain what happened with Cornelius. I don't understand it either, but woo, Holy Spirit filled him. And Paul stands up and says, man, God's just doing so much everywhere I go. God's moving, and the Gentiles are being saved. And, and finally, the, 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 the leaders of the early church said, you know what? They don't have to become Jews, Hey, they don't have to be circumcised, which was the big issue, right? They, 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 they don't have to keep all the festivals. They don't, they don't have to do what we're doing. They could be Gentiles and yet love Jesus. And so the early church wrote this edict in Acts 15 and said, hey, you, you guys can be Gentile Christians, but let, let, me, let us give you three warnings or three encouragements. Abstain from food offered to idols, abstain from sexual immorality, and abstain uh, from strangled animals and from blood. And it says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So there's this lingering question in the air. Here's all these Gentile Christians. And the question, it seems like that's in the air is, well, God has always had this one special group of people. He chose Abraham and was, did all those incredible, they were his chosen special people. And then it went from a, a man and his family to this nation. But where do I fit in as a Gentile? Which is a good question for all of us to ask because I think we're all Gentiles in this room, as far as I know. As far as I know. So how do you fit into the family of God? Are you like that weird adopted stepbrother that's just like, well, we'll put up with you. Welcome to Thanksgiving, but we'll see you next Thanksgiving. (laughs) I mean, is that our relationship in the family of God? Where where do I fit in on this thing? Where, where, Where do I... I mean, am I, am I God's special treasure now? Or is that reserved for just that group of people over there? So as we come into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, that is kind of the issue that Paul is poking at. He's saying, look, I, I'm, I'm addressing you guys in the Ephesians church, which was a church of Gentiles. He says, hey, let me explain to you What's going on here? And I love this. Uh, look at verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you know who he's writing to? He's writing to the saints. By the word, that word is not what we think of in our modern day. The word here is just the set-apart ones the ones who have been chosen, the ones who have been made other than the world around them. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses the same word that God used for Israel, that you're to be holy and set apart and separate and other than. In fact, as you begin to walk through the whole book itself, Paul Paul says in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, hey, you are blessed. In fact, verse 4, you are chosen. Yeah, you Gentiles you were chosen, not recently. God didn't just choose you. See, he chose you before the foundations of the world. Even before there were Jews and Gentiles, you were chosen. Which means you are chosen. So you are not some afterthought. You are not some, well, I guess we'll bring you in. I guess we'll let you be a part of the Thanksgiving. See, there, there's none of that in the passage. 
The idea in the passage, Paul is saying, do you realize that you are not, yeah, you're outsiders, but you are no longer outsiders, you're insiders. That God has brought you in. In Romans, he talks about this idea that he has grafted you in. That, that you are now a part of the real thing. You are part of the, the essence. You are part of the, that it's not like, woo, Jews. And then we have this little twig called Gentiles. And he's, you're just kind of like shoved in there and duct taped. So you see, you are not duct taped into the kingdom. I mean, I love duct tape, but hey, you are not a duct tape Christian. You are an authentic Christian who've been brought in. Uh, in, in, his, in his prayer, verses 15 down through verse 19, Paul talks about the fact that, hey, Jesus is to be everything in your life. As you get into this idea in verse 20, Paul's talking about the power of God, that the power of God is being demonstrated. Well, here's the overwhelming power of, power of God. The power of God is indescribable. Well, how does that power of God look like? Paul says, let me give you a few illustrations. Number one, the power of God worked in Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus, deader than a doornail. And what did the Father do? The Father reached into the deadness of Jesus and brought him into, into physical life. And if that wasn't good enough, which it would have been, he then took the physically, physically alive Jesus and brought him into the heavenly realms and seated him at the right hand of the Father and gave him all authority and all dominion and all power and all authority. And, and then Paul says, let me give you another illustration. You. Yeah, here you are dead spiritually, deader than a doornail, spiritually. And what did, the, what did the Father do? He reached into your deadness and brought you into physical life. Or sorry, spiritual life. And if that wasn't good enough, which it would have been, he then takes you spiritually and sits you in Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And that is a demonstration of the power of God. Paul says, oh, let me give you another illustration, which is our passage. Verses 11 through 22 is a third demonstration of the power of God. Well, what is the demonstration of? Think about this. And, and I'm going to read it in just one second. But the whole tone is that God has taken the Jews, he's taken the Gentiles, and he has brought them together. In fact, the language is so strong. Look at verse 14. For he is our peace who has made both groups, dare I say it, one. Let's, let's, let's just read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Just listen to this. This is a demonstration of the power of God being seen in the church. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that you formerly were Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands. So if that didn't make any sense to you, he's saying, hey, remember, you are Gentiles. And you are called uncircumcised. You're called Gentiles by those who are circumcised, the Jews. And you were, verse 12, at that time, apart from Christ, you've been cut off, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. I mean, you had no options. Yeah, you were totally destitute. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby slaying the enmity. 
And he came and he preached peace to those who were far away and pre- preached peace to those who were near. For through him we have access, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, get this, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. What an incredible declaration. So, hey, God, we, we, need, a, we, we need a demonstration of your power. Oh, look at Jesus, says Paul. Hey, you want, you want to know how big the power of God is? Look at your life. The fact that he's redeemed you from the, the, the darkness of sin and brought you into the kingdom of his dear son. Hey, if you want to see a demonstration of the power of God, all you have to do is look at the church. Let me rephrase that. You should be able to look at the church. Because the demonstration of the power of God, you've got to think of this in their context. Here's a whole bunch of Jews who hate the Gentiles. And what has God done? He has broken down every barrier and brought those two groups together. And now they are one. Do you know how exciting that is? That means, think about this, when we get to heaven, there is not going to be the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Do you know what there's going to be in heaven? Christians. That's phenomenal to me. That, 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 that separation, that, that division that's, that has always been there, that hatred and, and all the animosity of, hey, we don't like your group and we don't like your group. And hey, no, no, no. He in himself is bringing those groups together and making peace. If I can put that in the modern day context, you realize we're not going to get to heaven and have Baptist Christians. There are no Baptist Christians in heaven. I'm sorry, there are no Baptists in heaven. And there are no Presbyterians in heaven. And there are no Lutherans in heaven. And there are no Methodists in heaven. And there are no Pentecostals in heaven. And all these little dividing walls that we have established... And yeah, maybe for good reason. But all these dividing walls that we have created are going to be removed. Why? Because there are no Baptist Christians in heaven, just as there's no Jewish Christians in heaven. And there's no Gentile Christians in heaven. There are no Lutheran Christians in heaven. They're just Christians. And I know that a lot of our Christian jokes, you know, have this idea that, you know, in, in the Lutheran corner, in the Baptist corner, you know, in the Presbyterian corner, in the Meth- we have a lot of corners in heaven for some reason. You know, the Methodist corner and the Charismatic corner and the... There are no corners in heaven. There's not little special groups in heaven. There are Christians in heaven who rally around Jesus Christ alone. Now that is convicting in our modern day. Just as it was probably convicting in their day. Because, hey, if you're a Jewish Christian, you look at the Gentile Christians and you're like, you know why God made you? Let me tell you. That there's such a hatred and animosity and folks, we have brought that same mindset into the church today. That, hey, we do not want to, we don't want to, <laughs> I spent about a decade in the South, and I love the South. I really love the South. The problem with the South is, is that, I remember in the town that I, I was in, there was this corner, and on the corner there was four different churches, one on every corner. 
and yet they refuse to talk to each other. They refuse to do anything together. They refuse, why? Because that, those Baptists, at ah, those Lutherans, at ah, those. And it's just, there was such an animosity between. Wouldn't it be interesting if the people of God today could somehow reflect the power of God by being one? I'm not saying we're all going to agree on every little thing. Hey, you might like pepperoni pizza. You might like sausage. You might like Hawaiian. Fine, whatever. Let's get off of that. But wouldn't it be a beauty in the unity of the body of Christ? That is supposed to be a picture of the power of God. And that's what Paul is addressing here in the passage. In fact, let me just give you further verses here. This whole, this is so strong in Scripture that this whole dividing wall has been broken down. There are no more Jewish and Gentile stuff. In fact, Romans 3, 29 and 30. Paul says, For he, sorry, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he also not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So, hey, how, how is he going to justify the Jews, the circumcised? By faith. How is he going to justify the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? By faith. 1 Corinthians 7.19. Circumcision, this is Paul speaking. He's a good Jew. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. Paul says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but it is faith working through love. See, Paul is going after this idea of, if you're a Gentile, you do not have to become a Jew. Hey, if you're a Jew, you don't have to give up your Jewness. You don't have to become a Gentile. Just be a Christian. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 9 through 11. You have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Get this, where there is no Jew nor sorry, where there's no Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Praise the Lord. Uh, Galatians three, twenty six through twenty nine. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you have faith in Christ Jesus, woo, you're in. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Get this. That in Christ, this is what Paul's talking about in the context, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are of Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. <clears throat> so hey, you don't have to be a Jew to receive the promises. Why? Because you receive them in Christ. Now, please understand, we're not diminishing the roles. The roles haven't changed. If you're a man, you are still a man. Sorry. If you're a woman, you're still a woman. Sorry. Right? That, that doesn't change. Right? If you're a slave, I'm sorry. You don't get, in this culture, you're not set free the moment you become a Christian. Hey, if you're, hey, if you're a master, you don't become a slave the moment you become a Christian. But all of that is done away with in Christ. Again, you sought the function in the, in the place you're at. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just, the role doesn't change, but positionally in Christ, you are brand new. Isn't that a phenomenal thought? So as we begin to walk through this, again, we're going to walk through this a little bit slower <laughs> and take this kind of piece by piece over the next few weeks. But you've got to get the big picture here. Paul is answering almost a lingering question in the mind of the Gentile 
which is, well, where do I fit into the family of God? Am I just a duct taped into the family kind of a Christian? Paul says, no, no, you got to understand. Yes, you've been cut off. Yes, you were far, you were estranged from the family, but he has taken you and he has brought you in. In fact, every dividing wall that was between you and the Jews and what the Jews had, that has been brought down. I'm not saying the Jews still don't have a place. But what I'm saying is that, that, that what God is doing is he's bringing them together. And now as the family of God, we don't have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He's made us one. Hey, we don't have Lutheran Christians and Baptist Christians. Hey, we are one. Hey, don't, we don't have Calvinist Christians and Armenian Christians. I know that's a scary thought. We are one. And wouldn't it be amazing in this day and age if we could reflect that again. And I don't know, I've been pondering this afresh with all the stuff that's going on and all the anger and all the racism and all the, all the arguments and all the riots and all the... You realize that one of the demonstrations of the power of God, according to Paul, is when his body functions as a body. And there is no more hatred and there is no animosity and there is no division between, well, this and this. It's we are one in Christ Jesus. Now, culture is going to do whatever culture is going to do. Fine, let them do whatever they want to do. But there shouldn't be division in the body of Christ. Hey, there shouldn't be this animosity between the, in the body of Christ. There shouldn't be these dividing walls that say, well, hey, I don't agree with your politics. I don't agree with your philosophy. I don't agree that we are one in Christ if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it look like in today's culture to have that? Which is why Jesus says we are to be known by our love. Because when we're actually functioning as the body and that dividing wall has been torn down and we have actually love for one another, you realize that testifies of the glory and the power of God. It actually becomes indescribable. That when, uh, when the culture looks at a group of people who should not get along together, they, shouldn't, they should not like each other, and yet they're loving each other and they're pouring out their lives for each other and they're washing each other's feet and they're making each other food and they're, just, they're going out of their way to serve how do you begin to describe that? Well, that, that's not culture. That's not the world. That's truly, it's supernatural. It's otherworldly. It's a picture of God and his movement, his power being demonstrated. I would love that to return back to the stage of time. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, you are our peace. And just as in the early church you broke down this dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile and that hostility and that hatred, Lord, could you do that in our day? And yeah, it's not between the Jew and the Gentile thing anymore. It's between the Christian and the Christian. <laughs> and we have our little pockets and we have our little sex and we have our little group, our little, our little clusters. And we think we have all the answers and the other people are just Lord, what would it look like if somehow the body of Christ became one? See, what would it look like if we truly had love one for another? Not just in our local congregations where we have usually the same thinking. What would it look like if we looked at that other group down the road, across the street, who do have faith in your name? And yeah, they might express it a little bit differently, and we may not agree fully with how they interpret theology. And hey, But what if we could truly, genuinely love them and Lord, I, I recognize there's a tension in this because, hey, we, we should have correct doctrine. And yeah, we should, we should point out error. I get, I get that. But, 
but Lord, I, I don't want to be pointing out error and mislove. I, I don't want to be so dogmatic about, about nuance and, and yet fail to actually fulfill the higher law, which is love. And Lord, I'm not saying look over things either. I just, God, you've got to make this clear in this day and age. When because of social media, everyone has a platform and everyone has a voice and everyone's poking at everybody else. And, and yet what I'm not seeing in the church is this unity, this focus on Jesus. Because Lord, the only way we're ever going to be unified is when we focus upon you. When, when you become preeminent, then somehow it just seems like I can, all right, you're a Calvinist, all right, you're an Arminius, all right, you're a Lutheran, you're all right, you're a Baptist, all right. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to give that up, I'm just, I want fellowship with you. I want to pursue Jesus with you. I want to link arms and run after him with you. And Lord, somehow that's, that needs to be brought forth today. And whatever these dividing walls that we have created over the last few hundred years, Lord, Lord, would you somehow break them down and would you be our peace? And could the world somehow look up upon the church once again, and say, wow, I'm seeing the power of God being demonstrated. Because there's a whole bunch of people who should not be agreeing economically and politically and e even on the, on the nuances of theology. I'm with Paul and I'm with Apollos and I'm with Peter and I'm with the Baptists and I'm with the Lutherans and I'm with... Well, what would it look like if somehow there was actual genuine unity in the body of Christ? Maybe there's a place where we can still hold all of our, our, our special little nuances, but well, let us not build walls and seclude ourselves from the body because you have one bride. And when we get to heaven, Jesus, I'm convinced that there's not going to be these little sectors of, of little groups and pockets. There's going to be one bride. It's the church. So, Lord, I don't want to be a Christian, a a certain kind of Christian. Lord, I just want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a Baptist Christian, a Lutheran Christian, a Methodist Christian, a charismatic Christian. God, could I just be a Christian? Because the definition of that word means I look like you. I'm reflecting you. So Lord, whatever you need to bring down in my life, whatever walls of my life you need to bring down, whatever disunity, Lord, would you, would you, would you bring conviction in my heart of, in, of anything and everything in my life? that needs to be removed and sanctified and transformed so that I could have unity, so that I could have the peace with the body. And Lord, this world at this day and this hour desperately needs to see a demonstration of your power. So Lord, would you start in your church? Would you bring revival to your church, your bride, Love you, Jesus. What a phenomenal thought. Just give the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.